over ladies and gentlemen thank you for tuning in you are listening to fiscamall your weekly consistency check on america's political and legal file systems i am your host t greg Doucette, here in studio with mike the sound guy have samson with us again this week he uh poor dog has got some kind of allergies of some sort so we're having to give him medicine that'll hopefully minimize his itching and i brought him into the studio to make sure that he doesn't uh have any kind of bad reaction to it. That was actually just him coughing in the background. Not sure if you heard him. Folks, we are back on our regular podcast rotation. We did have a special subscriber-only episode that dropped last Thursday. If you missed that, make sure to go subscribe. You should still be able to download it. I think you will enjoy it. And this episode, we are doing something a little bit different. We are calling it WT Fisk. This will be the first of several episodes, I want to do one roughly every four weeks, where I turn the show over to you and I spend time answering your questions. It could be about anything you want. We've got a variety of them uh, to go through this week, and then starting back next week, we'll continue talking about the news. Thankfully, our uh, sun-kissed sultan, the great president, Donald Trump, is out of the country this week, thank God. So we do have an opportunity to uh, answer some of your questions without missing too much on the news front. And for our first question this episode, we have to go back to last week's podcast, where you might recall, if you listened to it, we talked a little bit about graduation at Harvard and some of the black students that were there. Here's an audio clip from that particular podcast to refresh your recollection. A group of black students are having a party. That's it. They're having a fucking party to celebrate the fact that they graduated from one of the most rigorous academic institutions in the country, one of the most prestigious, an institution founded and funded uh, based on slavery, you know, which is a very common thing. You look, for example, here in North Carolina, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, it is considered a public ivy, but it was built on slavery and slave money. The endowments they've got, slaveholders donated to it. The graveyard they've got on campus, still segregated to this day. So a few students of color decided they wanted to have a party to celebrate graduation, and Republicans are losing their fucking shit. And in a classic illustration of Republicans losing their shit, we get a question from at Mr. Smith is ready. I don't think Mr. Smith was ready, but he asks, quote, so are we okay with whites only party sponsored by white students? And to Mr. Smith, sure. You know, usually we just cut to the chase and call them fraternities and sororities. But guess what? They have graduation parties, too. If you haven't been to a party comprised of pretty much just white people, you haven't spent a lot of time in the South. You know, let me give you an example. Have you all ever heard of Kappa Alpha Fraternity, the Kappa Alpha Order? One of my very best friends is a KA from undergrad, and he's a very chill dude. Love him to death. If we ever have a zombie apocalypse, he's going to be one of the first guys I seek out. And that particular fraternity was founded at Washington and Lee University in Virginia. The Lee part of that is Robert E. Lee, the famous Confederate general. So when I visited him on campus and went to their fraternity house, I walked in, and there is an enormous life-sized portrait of Confederate General Robert E. Lee sitting on a horse in the KA house. Now, if you're a black person, 
I can't imagine you're going to feel too comfortable walking into a house full of white people with a Confederate general hanging on the wall. And if that's the case, I don't judge you for that. I get that you might feel a little weird. Conversely, if you're a white person, I could understand if you went to a fraternity house for Phi Beta Sigma and you walk in and there's a life-size portrait of Huey Newton on the wall holding a spear in one hand and his AK-47 in the other. I understand that. That's part of life. There's a difference between segregating something, desegregating something, and integrating something. All right? Someone around here made the uh, argument that segregation means you're banned from going to prom desegregation means you're allowed to go to prom, and then integration means someone actually asks you to dance. You see that a lot across universities throughout the Southeast. It wouldn't surprise me if you see them elsewhere in the country, where people tend to stick to folks who have a shared cultural experience. That's nothing fundamentally bad. It becomes bad when your government steps in to help ensure that it stays that way, when businesses step in to ensure it stays that way, to block you from joining in. No one at Harvard was saying, hey, white kids, you can't come to a black kid's party. It was, hey, other black kids, we've gone through this shared experience at this racist institution. Let's go ahead and celebrate the fact that after four years, five years, six years, depending on whatever degree they were getting, they were all graduating from Harvard. So yes, Mr. Smith, the fact is we happen to have these types of parties on a regular basis and no one fucking cares no one raises an alarm when a bunch of white kids at KA get together to celebrate graduation. So why is it any of your business what students at Harvard do in their spare time? Here's a hint. It's not. For our second question, it actually ties back to our very first full episode, and it was just a teeny tiny part of that episode, but I've got terrific listeners. Y'all pay attention. And I'm going to play the clip before we get into the question itself. So here's the clip from that particular episode. You know, I, I'm not that old, okay? It wasn't that long ago when the Supreme Court decided the Citizens United case. And if you haven't read it, go read it, all right? I think it was a good decision, made sense, followed long-standing precedent. And when Democrats in Congress proposed a constitutional amendment to reverse that decision, it was Republicans who made hay out of it. Oh my God, for the first time, politicians are proposing changes to the First Amendment, changes to freedom of expression. And now you elect this guy to office and magically it's the Republicans that are doing that. Now that particular clip was regarding uh, the chief of staff, Reince Priebus, confirming that Donald Trump was looking into trying to modify the United States Constitution to open up the libel laws. And at Travologist on Twitter, one of our listeners says, why do you support the Citizens United decision? So let me talk a little bit about court decisions in general. All right? There are always a couple different ways to look at things that the Supreme Court happens to rule on. You always have the kind of the, the outcomes-based view. Was the decision supporting or opposing something that you like politically? And then you've got the kind of legalese-based view where was that decision logical based on pre-existing precedent? Was it something that makes sense given what the courts have already decided? Because unlike your circuit courts, your district courts, the Supreme Court really can change precedent whenever it wants, you know? The circuit court is bound to follow what the Supreme Court has said, but the Supreme Court can say, look, we've got this old precedent, and it was just wrong. 
If you look, for example, at some of the decisions we covered on the episode where our Law 140 addressed precedent, issues like uh, gay marriage, sodomy, that sort of thing, the Supreme Court had previously ruled that that type of stuff was okay to criminalize. You could ban gay people from having sex. But then you had Texas v. Johnson, uh, U.S. v. Obergefell, these other decisions where not only is it none of the government's business, what you do in the privacy of your own home, it also violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to try and block certain groups of people from getting married. That type of thing is a power that the lower courts don't have. They can play word games and try and distinguish between certain facts and the Supreme Court's precedents, but generally, for the most part, they've got to follow those precedents. The times when precedent gets changed or overruled usually happens when the lower courts have enforced the precedent and the result has been something that people don't like, judges don't like, and your justices take it on review and end up changing the precedent. So the Citizens United decision addressed what was known as the McCain-Feingold Bill. The official title was the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. It was passed in 2002, and it was like most stuff in Washington. Like It was a very enormous bill that had a lot of moving parts. Uh, among those, there was a ban on what was called soft money. Um, so you have what's called hard money, where a donor has to be listed when they donate to a candidate. The dollar amount is listed. Their employer uh, and occupation is listed. And then soft money was kind of this um, undocumented money that you gave to a candidate directly. So McCain-Feingold, the BCRA, banned giving soft money to political candidates. And then you had another piece of it where you were prevented by law from running any kind of political advertising about a candidate within 30 days of a primary or 60 days of a general election. So when McCain-Feingold passed, it immediately got challenged in court. There were a couple different decisions about it. Uh, the ban on soft money was upheld, so still you can't give any soft money to candidates to this day. But the piece about not being able to have anything relating to a candidate within 30 days of a primary, 60 days of a general, that is what the Citizens United decision was about. So when that decision came down, it, it came out during my 1L year of law school. And I will confess to you, because we're among friends here and hopefully you won't judge me for it, I've been reading Supreme Court opinions for fun since I was a kid. Like, I was one of those guys that was just growing up very fascinated by civics and the structure of government and the coolness of how the Constitution laid everything out. And I just enjoyed reading Supreme Court opinions, even if I didn't fully understand what they were about until I got older. So I ended up spending my afternoon on January 21st, 2010, uh, reading that entire opinion. And then the next day, I actually wrote a blog post about it, going, you know, I had a blog at the time to kind of keep my sanity during law school. So taking the approach, like I mentioned earlier, where you can look at it two different ways, looking at it from a political standpoint, I supported the decision because I didn't like McCain-Feingold. I didn't think that it was a proper use of political power. Uh, I actually, when McCain ran for president in 2008, I did not vote for him. I voted for Barack Obama. And a big part of why is because of the fact that I hated McCain-Feingold. When you think about what it did, it wasn't there to try and take money out of politics. It was passed to try and ensure your incumbent Congress critters could get reelected without any opposition. You know, it didn't affect 
media. There was nothing stopping a newspaper from endorsing someone within 30 days of a primary or 60 days of a general. You know, it didn't stop individuals from running ads within 30 days of a primary or 60 days of a general. It stopped associations from doing that. So if you decided that you felt very strongly about John McCain, positive or negative, but you didn't have enough money on your own to do anything about it, you decided to go out and try and convince other people to see your viewpoint and to pool your resources, you actually ended up with fewer rights as a group than any of you would have as an individual. And I just didn't think that was proper at all. But in addition to that, when you look at the outcome of the decision, there's widespread misinformation that because of Citizens United, you have these what are called 527s, these super PACs, these groups that are under different sections of the tax code. And that's not true. Those groups actually came about because McCain-Feingold was adopted in 2002. Citizens United didn't get decided until 2010. The decision itself had no practical impact. It did absolutely nothing, except saying that politicians could not stop you or groups of you and your friends from criticizing politicians. Politicians could not block you from criticizing them at any time for any reason. And to me, that makes sense. I mean, that is part of what America is about. We are free to slam our government, our elected officials, as we see fit. That's just how the ordered liberty of our country is supposed to go. So politically, I agreed with the Citizens United decision. But if you have time, go through and read the whole decision itself. It actually goes back pretty well on precedent that's been established for decades. You know, Antonin Scalia had a concurrence where he focused on going over the history of campaign finance regulations. So how that turned out really wasn't a surprise. If you look, for example, about the issue of whether or not money is speech, whether or not money can be regulated when it comes to campaigns. You go back to Buckley versus Vallejo, which was a 1976 case, something decided before I was born. And in Buckley, the question was whether or not Congress could limit the amount of money you could donate to a candidate. The Supreme Court said, in essence, that yes, Congress could cap the maximum contribution to a candidate because there's always the potential that giving too much money to a certain candidate would lead to corruption, the appearance of impropriety, and that sort of thing. But Congress could not prevent how much you yourself decided to spend on any kind of electioneering communication. You might not be able to give a candidate more than, say, $2,000, but you could spend $5,000 on your own, creating your own mailings, sending them out to your own friends, trying to convince them to support or oppose a candidate of your choice. So that was a, that was precedent long before McCain-Feingold happened, long before Citizens United was ever decided. And there's a lot more cases to that. Like Citizens United is a long decision. The majority opinion, I think, was around 108 pages. Don't quote me on that. I don't have it pulled up right now. But it's lengthy. And I would encourage you to go through and read it and read some of the, uh, the precedents that it relied on. It made a lot of sense. So I'll link this blog post from 2010 in the show notes so you can read it, give you some insight into my 1L brain. But whether you look at Citizens United from an outcomes-based perspective or from a precedent-based perspective, I think it was the right decision, and I think it was decided logically. You know, Obviously, the dissenting opinions disagreed with me, but that's also why I'm not a Supreme Court justice. So, Travologist, at Travologist, thank you for that particular question.
Our third question this week comes from at Sarah M. Schechter, who asks, quote, What will replacing Scalia with Gorsuch do to already weakened Fourth Amendment jurisprudence? That is a fantastic question. Those of you that follow me on Twitter know that I've complained for quite a while about how the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution has really been gutted over time by both conservative and liberal courts. Like, it just seems the founders put this amendment in place, and then the Supreme Court just kind of said, eh, fuck it. Um, it, it's really, at this point, very bad. And whether you like or dislike Antonin Scalia, he was actually a very strong defender of the Fourth Amendment on a pretty regular basis. You know, you look, for example, in Kilo versus United States, which was a case where police took thermal images of a man's home and discovered that he was growing marijuana. You know, Scalia said that that was unlawful. You look at United States versus Jones, which was a 2012 case where government agents went onto this guy's property, attached a GPS to his Jeep, and monitored where he went for a long time without a warrant to discover that he was trafficking in drugs. Um, you also look at Florida versus Jardines, which is a 2013 case where police uh, brought a drug dog onto a guy's porch to discover there was mar- marijuana being grown inside. On all of those cases, Scalia made it clear that that was a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So if you look, for example, at the Kelo decision, this was another one of those cases where if you tuned in to our May 8th episode where we talked about the Slager sentencing and the case law around federal sentencing guidelines, Kelo was a case where you had a very scrambled 5-4 majority. You again had Scalia and Thomas, what are typically seen as conservative justices, as part of that majority. And then you had Ginsburg, Souter, and Justice Breyer, who were part of the liberal wing. Four of those five justices were also part of the five-justice majority in cases like Apprendi versus New Jersey, Booker v. Washington, those cases we talked about regarding Slager's plea. In Kelo, Scalia wrote, quote, The Fourth Amendment's protection of the home has never been tied to the measurement of the quality or quantity of information obtained. In the home, our cases show, all details are intimate details because the entire area is held safe from prying government eyes. You also look at the uh, the Jardines case. You have, again, another one of these scrambled 5-4 majorities. This time it was Scalia and Thomas, and then you had uh, Ginsburg again, and then your two new liberal justices, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan. Scalia writes, when it comes to the Fourth Amendment, the home is first among equals. So a lot of Scalia's jurisprudence tries to uh, stand athwart this trend of gutting the Fourth Amendment. So then the question becomes, now that he's gone, we now have uh, Justice Gorsuch taking his place. How is that going to change? Now, the short answer, of course, is I don't know. There's no telling how jurisprudence is going to change once someone becomes a justice on the Supreme Court. But part of why defense attorneys like me were comfortable with Gorsuch being appointed is that when you look at some of his decisions, he also kind of has this, you know, we call it pro-defendant, but it really is a pro-Fourth Amendment outlook on several of his cases. So if you look, for example, at uh, United States v. Carlos, and and let me do an aside, I'm going to link these cases in the show notes, so you don't have to feel compelled to, to write them down. 
But there was a case in U.S. v. Carlos where a federal agent and a local police officer went to this guy's house to talk with him, even though there were several no trespassing signs on the property, including the front door. And one of the questions at trial, long story short, they found out this guy was doing uh, running meth labs. And when he was prosecuted, he tried to have the evidence suppressed, arguing that the police weren't allowed to come onto his property to do a search without a warrant when he had these no trespassing signs up. Now, in that panel decision, there were two judges who said that was fine, the police were cool. Uh, Gorsuch actually had a very long dissent about it. He made it clear that the officers were going to the house to do a search. I mean, that part was a given. They didn't have a warrant. That, too, was a given. Um, so the idea was that if you take the majority's reasoning that police can disregard no trespassing signs to go try and talk to a criminal defendant or a criminal suspect at this point without a warrant, you're basically creating essentially a permanent easement where the government can kind of come into the curtilage, the outskirts of your home at any time for any reason. And Gorsuch said, quote, this line of reasoning seems to me difficult to reconcile with the Constitution of the Founder's design. Uh, you also had a case of United States versus Ackerman, which was in the Tenth Circuit, where it involved an internet service provider scanning emails for uh, the images that were attached, flagged some of them as pornography, and then notified the police that this particular guy had received pornographic images and he was prosecuted. And the issue in that case was whether or not this internet service provider was acting as a government agency or a government agent conducting a warrantless search. And Gorsuch said that, yes, you know, just because you're not exercising government powers officially doesn't mean you're not acting on the government's behalf to do the government's bidding. So he's got other decisions that are like this, where he takes a very skeptical view of government authority and that's a big deal when it comes to the Fourth Amendment, because so much of the search and seizure jurisprudence gets tied to the outcomes. You know, this, the courts have allowed police to get away with a lot if they happen to find incriminating evidence. And that's absolutely mind boggling. That's not how the courts are supposed to work. You're supposed to follow the rules. We're supposed to have the rule of law. And then you let the chips fall where they may at trial. So Gorsuch has a lot of other opinions that we happen to like. Amy Howe at SCOTUS blog, I don't know if she's a listener, but she actually had a very good piece back in March where she goes through some of these Gorsuch decisions on the Fourth Amendment. I'll leak it in the show notes. But to go back to the question of how is it going to change the jurisprudence, my hope is he's going to continue being a very Scalia-like defender of the Fourth Amendment. I don't know if that'll happen, but based on his work product so far, it seems like it's going to be that way. So uh, thank you very much for the question, Sarah. I appreciate it. And we'll see years down the line whether or not I'm right. So our last question for this episode was sent via direct message. I was asked not to share the uh, the person's name, but it's something that I've gotten a bunch of times since I ran for office last year. And it was, why do I self-identify as a conservative? Why was I a Republican at the time that I ran? And I would guess probably a couple of you listening right now 
are nodding your head going, yeah, I'm wondering that exact same thing. Like if I had a nickel for every time I got asked that question, I wouldn't be doing a podcast. I would be retired on some tropical island somewhere. But this issue of what makes me a conservative, why I think of myself as a conservative, you got two components of it. One is kind of my personal beliefs and how I conduct my own life. And then we've got kind of how do you apply that to the government? So, you know, from the standpoint of me personally, a lot of it comes down to really trying to remember where I came from. You know, I do my part to try and be respectful to people when I can. I go out of my way to try and be honest with people. Uh, I try and be tactful, even though I'm honest. Sometimes my honesty gets me labeled as an asshole, but that's just part of life. I try and at least be tactful in that honesty. Uh, I'm a very strong believer in God. I am a Christian. I don't, you know, I'm not outward with that because it's not my job to convince you. You know, if it's something where you're open to talking about it, great. I'm happy to have that discussion, but I don't try and, you know, shove it in your face. Um, you know, even stuff like, you know, drinking. I don't drink that often. I don't smoke at all. I've never done drugs. I don't judge the people that do. It's just not something I've ever had an interest in doing. But the big part comes down to how we take those values and apply them to the government. And in this case, I actually have a written list. I actually wrote these things down because it's the type of stuff where I think it's valuable for people to actually articulate what they believe. And if it's something where you notice your beliefs changing over time, you know, update that list. And if they're not changing over time, if you still believe the same things, what someone says to you, hey, this doesn't fit with uh, what you've held out as your political views, it gives you something to go back to to determine whether or not you're kind of going astray yourself. You know, I, I liken it to the Constitution. Whenever we're debating the constitutionality of a law, the very first place you go is the Constitution itself to look at the words in the document. And then you go from there on things like, uh, you know, legislative intent, precedent, that sort of thing. So I actually have a list. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read this list to you of what I consider to be conservative principles. These are kind of the high-level overview of things that I believe, and then you got to try and apply them to individual policy questions, and sometimes that gets kind of messy. But if you were to boil everything down to its core, I think all people are flawed. We're inherently flawed, everybody, myself included. And because of that, the fewer people you have in government running fewer areas of your lives, the better. If you had to distill everything down to one principle, I think that's kind of the, the North Star, the polar spot that you go to. I think any power that a government has, you have to divide it well between your federal government, your state government, and your local city, county, towns. Because you want to make sure that no one gets too much of it. And you should have less power the higher up the pole you go. Because the fact is, if your town goes crazy with regulations or whatever else, it's fairly easy to change that policy because you have fewer voters to change the politicians, or you can always move. It's a little bit more difficult to change state legislators or to move states. And it gets very difficult to unseat Congress critters or to move countries if your government goes overboard. So a power needs to be well divided. You need to believe in federalism. But then once you figure out what your federal government, your state government, your local governments, what they're supposed to do, even among them, that power should be well divided among co-equal branches with checks and balances that actually work. 
So at the federal level, that means your executive branch, your bureaucracy, needs to recognize its role is to execute laws, not to make them. You know, we've gotten lazy as a country where we let Congress just delegate its lawmaking power to the executive branch and then just kind of wash their hands of it because these guys are worthless and all they do is focus on getting reelected so we can keep paying them lots of money so they can go to fancy dinners. I can't stand Congress. But that's just kind of how it is nowadays. You know, we need to adhere to the Constitution and the checks and balances that are in place. It's the job of the legislature to legislate. It's the job of the legislature to exercise oversight. It's the job of the executive to execute. You know, so power needs to be divvied up among the branches. But regardless, the total size, the total scope of your government should be as small as you can make it, as small as practicable, because the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. Conversely, the smaller your government, the bigger your sphere for private life. You want to have this large sphere of people to go about doing their own thing, because even if we're flawed, when we're left alone, we can actually accomplish a lot of stuff. You know, there's a, uh, one of the things that you'll see if you ever take an economics class is this short story called I Pencil. And it kind of talks about how pencils get created and there are so many private actors working together to bring this pencil into existence. And there's no coordination by the government to make that happen. They're all self-coordinating among each other. So you want to make sure that people can do their own thing. And a, a consequence of that is that you have to recognize the dangers of an all-powerful government. You know, especially among the executive branch, we have an imperial presidency that we've had for decades, we've had for generations, we've had it since before I was born. But the fact is, a government that is big enough to give you everything you want is powerful enough to take away everything you have. So we shouldn't be in this habit of relying on other people to do things for us. We also need to ensure that everybody is truly equal before the law. It shouldn't matter how rich you are or your heritage, whether or not you've got a second or third or fourth appended to your name. shouldn't matter what race or gender or faith you believe in. You know, the 14th Amendment says there should be equal protection of the laws. Equal means equal. And in that equality, you've got to ensure that everybody from the greatest to the lowest is fully protected from unchecked government power. Because government can be arbitrary. Government can be capricious. You've got to make sure that they are protected from that. You take those safeguards. That should be your default baseline. That's how you should start. And then you have to recognize that outcomes matter. I mean, there are going to be some problems that society rightly wants solved that occasionally are going to require uh, solutions that would you, you would consider illiberal or unconservative. You know, you look, for example, at the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it banned companies that provided what are called public accommodations. So your public hotels, motels, restaurants, that sort of thing. If you are opening yourself up to the public, you're not able to discriminate based on race. You can't run a hotel and say, hey, no black people allowed. So as society and the courts were saying, hey, segregation is unlawful, you had people trying to get around segregation by just you know, closing off their businesses to racial minorities. So to end that scourge on the country, it ended up requiring legislation that runs counter to where the country had been at the time. I mean, you realize there are going to be the occasional cases. They don't happen often, but there are occasionally cases where the government has to step in to ensure equality. Uh, and that 
you know, is necessary sometimes. The fact is the government works for the people. It is a tool. It is part of the social contract. It exists to serve the people who helped create it. So you got to recognize that's part of life. I also am a very strong believer in the pursuit of knowledge. And you can do that empirically, you know, by gathering uh, evidence from experiments or whatnot. And you can also come to knowledge through theory and through logical reasoning. But at the same time, that has to be coupled with a recognition that as humans, we're very prone to what's called the pretense of knowledge, this idea that it's possible to know all things about all things. You know, you see it a lot in political discussions where politicians will try and say something along the lines of, we don't really disagree about this fundamental issue. It's just we don't have enough information. Sometimes that's true. But a lot of times, it's not possible to know everything. You think, for example, about our market economy. You have roughly 300 million-ish Americans every day going about organically, mostly autonomously, and entering into transactions with one another. There's no possible way any egghead in the government will ever be able to figure out how that happens on a daily basis. It's just not there. Uh, and to be honest with you, I also think it's necessary to believe that we exist for some purpose that's greater than ourselves. Now, whether you manifest that in faith and a belief in the afterlife, that's up to you. I don't really care. But the fact is we need to leave this country, this world, better than it was when we came into it. You know, there's a fundamental recognition that the United States of America is an idea just as much as it's a location. You know, we're not just a piece of land bordered by two oceans, a river, and an imaginary wall with Canada. We were founded on this notion that people should be free. Now, that wasn't perfect. I mean, when we started, we had slavery. We had slavery for a tremendous part of our history. We fought a civil war about it. And even now, even though slavery is abolished, we still have essentially a slave economy using prisoners in our justice system. But our goal was aspirational. It's something where... We are trying to ensure that people have the opportunity to live free, and we're constantly working to improve that. You have what Thomas Jefferson referred to as the infinite perfectibility of man, and you see that manifested in the government that they helped create. And finally, I think one of the big components of being a conservative is not being an asshole. You know, part of why I left the Republican Party, really the, the biggest reason I left the Republican Party, is because being an asshole now is like, the main thing that the party does. It, it fueled Donald Trump's rise to the presidency. You know, we focus on judging others. Kids at Harvard want to have a party. Oh my God, I can't believe these black people are segregating themselves from society. This mother's going to get an abortion. Oh my God, she's going to burn in hell. Let's not even bother trying to figure out why she feels compelled to make that choice. What is it that that's such a huge issue? Let's not even think about that. You know, oh my God. So-and-so wants to come to America to get a better life. Well, it doesn't matter. We're going to judge them for being an immigrant who came in here without going through the proper paperwork. You know, that type of assholishness is par for the course these days, and I hate it. You know, my grandparents, they're not conservative people at all. You know, when I was growing up, they hated all politicians, which I took as being conservative. Um, but one of the things that they focused on teaching me growing up was that no matter how smart I was, no matter how many degrees I ever got, no matter what I accomplished, no matter how much I made, I was no better intrinsically as a person than the person who picked up my trash or made my meals or anything else. We are all equal before God. We are all supposed to be equal before the government. 
And that is a fundamental piece of me politically, and I think it should be a fundamental piece of a governing philosophy as well. So, folks, that's going to wrap it up for our very first episode of WT Fisk, our uh, chance to answer your questions. Next week, we will be back to talking about the news. We've also had some stuff. I think our Law 140 is going to focus on this issue about uh, the president turning over the Rudy Giuliani memo and his Muslim ban. Haven't confirmed that yet, but I think that's where we're heading. So thank you for listening. I'm glad that you tuned in. Please tell your friends to subscribe. Leave us a review on uh, iTunes if you can, not just the rating. Like I like a five-star rating. That's fantastic. But also leave a review. If you like how we sound, if you like what we cover, give something that will tell someone else uh, what to expect when they tune in. And I look forward to having y'all join us next week. Please have a fantastic week. On behalf of myself, Mike the Sound Guy, Samson, who's now currently laying quietly in the corner, thank you all so much for tuning in. <laughs>